Hey, it's John Ingle, and I'm excited to share that registration is now live for Grid Tech Connect Forum California. Join us in Newport Beach June 24th through the 26th for the interconnection event. We're bringing together utilities, developers, regulators, and advocates to take on one of the biggest challenges facing the energy transition, both at the DG and utility scale levels. Click the link in the episode description and use promo code PODCAST to save 10% on admission. Join our partners from the Department of Energy, NREL, Southern California Edison, PG&E, Kaiso, Sunrun, NG, Convergent, AES, and so many more for this impactful event. We'll see you there. Hello and welcome to another episode of This Week in Clean Tech. It's a roundup of the week's biggest stories you need to know in climate and clean energy in 15 minutes or less. Today is Friday, December 8th, 2023. I'm Renewable Energy World Editor-in-Chief John Ingle. Dan Garino from Inside Climate News will be joining us shortly. I'm joined once again by Clean Tech PR veteran Michael Casey of TigerCom. Hello, Michael. How are I you? Went from, I went from Mike to Michael. Is that a graduation, John? I, I, yeah, I you've like gotten that. smarter from week to week. <laughs> And you got a haircut, so you look nice. So I thought I'd, I'd gas you up a little bit, uh, not to use a, a, a fossil fuel reference. <laughs> so I asked my wife last night, we were walking the dogs, should I wear a Santa hat this week? And she said, oh. no, it, it, it's wait till next week and you and John should wear them. So anyway, I'm passing all those instructions to you, my friend. Okay, I'll find one. All right, so we want to thank you, the listener, uh, for sending in those article suggestions and your nominations for This Week in Clean Tech, which we will get to at the end of the show. Uh, remember to keep sending those in to a new email, so rew at clarionevents.com, and we'll have that link in the episode description as well. All right, Mike, let's do it. What's our first one? We have a story written by Bloomberg's Ari Natter, Hydrogen Industry Signals Alarm Over Proposed U.S. Tax Credits. John, your thoughts? Yeah, this was a big one. Uh, I think late last week, maybe this was a, a Friday report, if I remember correctly. And all the hydrogen news seems to come out on Fridays. The hubs were announced on a Friday. Now we've got leaks of tax <laughs> credits. But draft treasury guidance for the hydrogen tax credits in the IRA re- leaked um, this week or, or late last week. Under these rules, tax credit eligibility would require hydrogen production to be powered by wind, solar, and other energy sor- clean energy sources built within the past three years. The guidance would also require that energy come from the same grid where hydrogen is produced on an annual basis through 2027. That was a big sticking point. Then on an hourly basis, starting in 2028, environmentalists argue that if the rules aren't strict, it could increase reliance on fossil fuel electricity and lock in bad hydrogen production. And while hydrogen storage capabilities and ability to provide energy during lulls and wind and solar power make it valuable, its production demands significant energy and using natural gas for hydrogen production would result in a higher carbon footprint than directly using natural gas itself. Mike, what did you think of this one? It was a big one. I think it's big too, because, you know, the hydrogen's got to play a role in the clean energy transition and getting the tax credits right is quite the balancing act. You make them too strict, not enough companies qualify, the industry doesn't scale. Make them too loose, you're basically throwing a lifeline to the gas industry when it doesn't really need one. So I do not envy the Department of Energy and the Department of Treasury trying to negotiate these, but man, it's a balancing act. And I think the best we're going to get to do is watch this trapeze act from the stands. John, what's our story number two? 
All right, this one's written by Eric Anderson, I think our first profiled uh, from PBS. This one titled, New California Rules Are Crushing the Solar Industry. Mike, what'd you think? Oh, boy. Uh, so the California PUC cut the value of electricity that solar homeowners uh, sell to the grid by 75% through ne new net metering rules. And this is a big deal because I think it seems obvious. You can't have a clean energy transition unless you've got a healthy residential solar installation sector. And I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that if, if like me, you're part of the clean energy industry and you didn't do anything to fight this change, which is basically the same argument the utility has been making for better part of a decade, then you have a, a share of a micro share of the blame here. And it's not a good development. You're going to have layoffs. You're going to have a contraction in this industry and it's taking us in the wrong direction. So I think the moral of the story here is in clean tech, we're either going to grow together or we're going to get picked off one by one. So John, what do you think? Yeah, it, it's not looking good in California. So California Solar and Storage Association predicts that by the first quarter of next year, 17,000 residential solar jobs will be lost. So that's how we see that the immediate impact of this uh, ruling that I believe took effect around April. And uh, unrelated, but another head-scratching decision from the CPUC in the last couple of weeks was the decision on uh, multiple meters on one property, not being able to self-consume that power and having to, to buy it back from uh, utilities at retail rates, which is, it, it kind of defeats the whole purpose. But, um, you know, it, it, nothing more to say than it, it's kind of a tough scene for that market that, um, thrived under previous net metering regimes to build up and be this uh, integral part of the economy only to see that the rug pulled out from under them. Mike, what's our third story? Yeah. Uh, before you introduce it, I'll just make a third point. If you're Gavin Newsom and you're clearly looking to run for president, either now or in four years, you're going to wear this decision. You're going to wear those layoffs. And if I were him, I'd be thinking about trying to change that. But, you know, he's not asking me for advice. Our third story is from Jael Holzman from Axios. It's called Treasury Department Lays Out EV Tax Credit Foreign Sourcing Rules. Fun fact, Jael, by the way, is a singer in a local punk rock band here in the National Capital area. John, your thoughts? I Thoughts on the rock band performing? I, I did not expect that to, to come out of this show, but um, more more music trends and insights from Mike Casey within the Beltway would be appreciated. Uh, so EV, EV companies will have to build new supply chains for battery components and minerals outside of China, or else they will soon lose eligibility for the IRA's rich $7,500 consumer EV tax credit. Starting in 2024, the restriction applies to battery components, and from 2025, it includes lithium, cobalt, graphite, and nickel, so really capturing the whole value chain there. Some EV companies who have qualified for the credit in the last year will lose it after these rules begin. Mike, what you take away? You know, I... I think this is yet another uh, facet on the challenge that we've got in this clean energy transition is how do you loosen China's grip on supply chains? They have an outsized um, presence in mining, refining, component manufacturing, and you can't just flick a switch and have that be different. But um, I think we're going to have to stay tuned for the automaker's reaction. This is a theme we're going to keep seeing over and over again, as we saw with the hydrogen story. There's a conflict between doing the energy transition quickly and doing it in a way that's ethical, sustainable, and politically enduring. John, what's our fourth story? 
Lots of EV news on this show the last few weeks. We've got a story from James Baikalis from Politico titled, Congress spent billions on EV chargers, but not one has come online. What'd you take away, Mike? So range anxiety is deterring, deterring Americans from buying EVs. That's not an irrational fear, at least right now, because the projected EV demand means that we're going to have six times as many charges. We're going to need six times as many charges on the road by the end of the decade as we have right now. So in 2021, Congress agreed to put $7.5 billion toward thousands of EV charges across the U.S., but none of them has been made installed. So these delays are going to they're going to feed into this narrative that the country's not ready for EVs. It's being pushed by uh, parts of the media spectrum that shall go unnamed here, but we'll see if the reality actually plays out because I think, you know, you can see the growing number of Teslas. Demand is there from the public. We just got to get the infrastructure in place. John, what do you think? 27 states and D.C. have yet to even request bids from this funding. That's an important note here. Only Ohio and Pennsylvania have used the funding to begin charger construction so far. We've got a long way to go here. This funding aims to have a network constructed every 50 miles along major highways, operational 97% of the time and equipped with credit card readers for convenient payments. So I, I think the the intent is good, but we got to get to deployment quickly. Mike, what's our fifth story? We're keeping up this week's EV theme with uh, this story from last week, uh, which is Dan Garino from Inside Climate News, who's joining us. Battery prices are falling again, and that's a good thing. Hello, Dan. Welcome to the show. Hey, guys. Glad to be here. For people who have not read the story yet, what's the biggest takeaway you want them to have? Uh, the big takeaway is 2022 was weird. Uh, 2022, battery prices went up. And it was this, if you look at a chart, it's just this really, it's an outlier. And at the time, analysts were telling me, um, telling everybody, there's some weird stuff going on in this market, and we're likely going to have prices go down again in 2023. And that's exactly what has happened. How significant, Dan, is this price drop? And, and what, what are we looking out to? So I, I see $161 per kilowatt hour that you reported down to 139 per kilowatt hour in the last year. And you also referenced that we're, we're looking at like 2027 for $100 kilowatt hour and, and maybe even lower. What's the significance to that threshold? And why, why should we be watching that number? So $100 per kilowatt hour is this benchmark. It also conveniently is, you know, where you go from three digits to two digits, but um, that people in the industry and researchers have kind of identified as the approximate point at which you see cost parity, where you can get a similar EV uh, for, you know, the price of a gasoline vehicle. Um, now, the reality is a lot more complicated. You know, I think it's more helpful to think of this as a range, you know, say 75 to maybe 110, 120 or something like that. The range is different depending on who you talk to. But when we get to $100, we're going to be in this territory where if I'm a car buyer, um, I will be able to find an EV that will not cost any more than an equivalent gasoline vehicle in certain segments. And that's a really big deal because right now, one of the impediments to consumer adoption is that EVs are expensive. Uh, EVs are more expensive than equivalent gasoline vehicles in just about every, if not every segment. Dan, based on your reporting, what is the 
the consensus on when that time of cost parity arrives? It seems like, you know, we're, we're talking about, let's give a range. Um, there, the more optimistic um, outlooks are, you know, soon after 2025, you know, where um, you're getting really close in 2026 and you hit it in 2027. There are more pessimistic outlooks that are talking about later in the decade um, you know, but that kind of also goes into this question of how meaningful is the hundred dollar number? I think if we think of it more in terms of a range in where, you know, if we get down to say $75 or something like that, you know, where by any estimate, we're going to be, have gone past that point of cost parity. Um, then I think we're, we're talking more about 2030 ish range. Um, but the bottom line is though, we're entering this multi-year period where we're kind of, we're, it's, uh, it's, it's kind of happening. And um, once it's actually happened, it'll kind of become clear. But um, I, 2027 to 2029, if I had to put money on it. I'm going to do a follow-up question. We, we talked about infrastructure earlier in the show. What is your sense of the expert's view on how much of a constraint on EV buying the constraint on EV charging is imposing? So I have, on this discussion, I have long thought that the infrastructure, the charging infrastructure concerns are overblown because so much of charging takes place in the home. So much of charging for people who are going to be getting EVs early on. Um, and, you know, but but I've gotten to the point now where I've talked to enough people who are deeply kind of involved in this space who say it is a real issue. Um, so I guess I'm gradually being convinced, you know, you talk about, so you may only need to use a charger outside of the home a few times, but if those few times it's a giant pain in the butt, um, that's a, that's a problem. Um, so it's, um, I still feel like talk about the charging infrastructures, slow rollout is, um, is maybe a bit much compared compared to what the practical lived experience is for EV owners. Um, but if I see another story about somebody getting to an EV charging station where it's completely out of order or where there are no chargers available and, you know, and it's like, those are real problems. And you know how it is. You, if this situation ruins your day once, you're ticked off. If it ruins your day a couple of times, you're telling all your friends and family and those, those situations matter. Yeah, I think that reliability piece is is a a big one that keeps coming up, too, is not even the availability of chargers. It's when we find them, they're not working or they're vandalized or or what have you. John, we are about out of time. I want to thank our wonderful producer, Brian Mendez and Claire Quarren and Alex Peterson for their help in assembling these stories. Yeah, and thank you, Mike, for taking my last question to Dan. We ran out of time and I had one more, but we'll have to save that for next time. Uh, so we also want to congratulate our Clean Tech of the Week. So doing this at the end of the show this time. So Clean Tech of the Week is Ryan Quint, the Director of Engineering and Security Integration at NERC. He's done some outstanding work along the path of improving power system reliability and enabling higher shares of renewables to be rapidly integrated on the grid. You can hear more about Ryan in uh, episode 67 of Factor This that we had a couple of weeks ago. So congratulations to our Clean Tech of the Week, Ryan Quint. Way to go, Ryan. All right, and we wish everybody happy holidays. Dan Garino, thanks for joining us, and we'll see you all back next week. Hey. 
Hey, it's John Ingle, and I'm excited to share that registration is now live for Grid Tech Connect Forum California. Join us in Newport Beach June 24th through the 26th for the interconnection event. We're bringing together utilities, developers, regulators, and advocates to take on one of the biggest challenges facing the energy transition, both at the DG and utility scale levels. Click the link in the episode description and use promo code PODCAST to save 10% on admission. Join our partners from the Department of Energy, NREL, Southern California Edison, PG&E, Kaiso, Sunrun, NG, Convergent, AES, and so many more for this impactful event. We'll see you there.